What this story is ultimately about is that conversations about privacy protection and what that actually means are so lopsided because we just don't know what it is that we're consenting to. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about privacy, which is fitting, seeing as how yesterday, January 28th, was Data Privacy Day. But on this almost Data Privacy Day, I am not here to tell you about national surveillance regimes, or about the anonymous browsing network Tor, or about how you can de-Google your life. Uh, Not because I am not interested in any of those things, but because quite the opposite. I've already made those episodes. (laughs) Instead, we are here today to talk about a privacy invasion that is both obvious and Byzantine. In 2020, a photo of a woman sitting on a toilet, her shorts pulled halfway down her thighs, was shared on Facebook. And it was shared by someone whose job was to look at that photo. And by labeling the objects in the photo, help train an artificial intelligence system for a vacuum. It is a situation so bizarre that intuitively, it feels like it must be unique. It is not. Last month, MIT Technology Review investigated the data collection and sharing practices of the company iRobot, the developer of the popular self-automated Roomba vacuums. In their reporting, MIT Technology Review discovered a series of 15 images, all captured by development versions of Roomba vacuums that were then shared with third-party contractors in Venezuela, whose job it was to label the photos with identifying information, like tagging a cabinet as a cabinet, a TV as a TV, a shelf as a shelf. This would help the vacuums learn what objects look like. But amongst the 15 images found by MIT Technology Review, at least two of them included people's faces. In one of those, a face of a child is captured. Shortly after MIT Technology Review published its first piece, other people reached out to the publication to share their own stories about their experiences with iRobot. These new voices were those of beta testers, uh, people who choose to test out a product before it hits the market, to offer feedback on those products, and to, in the process, maybe score a few gift cards or promotional offers. Being a beta tester often requires signing a lot of legal documentation, and in the case of the beta testers who spoke to MIT Technology Review, that documentation included sweeping statements about the data that iRobot would collect and share. Now, we've spoken several times on this show and on our blog about how unfair it is to expect everyday people to read every single end-user license agreement and every single set of terms and conditions just to understand how their data will be collected and shared and potentially sold. So many of us do not have that kind of time or often that kind of legal understanding to really understand what happens to our data. 
But for some of the beta testers who spoke to MIT Technology Review, it, it wasn't a matter of reading the agreements or not, because some of them did. It was more a matter of feeling like the agreements hid important details, uh, particularly about how many people, how many humans, would be involved in the process. It said one beta tester who spoke with MIT Technology Review, quote, human review didn't surprise me. The level of human review did, end quote. Today, to help us understand how this happened, we're speaking with the investigative reporter of the piece, Eileen Guo. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that really good introduction. I, I don't even know what I can add to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's hope you can add a little bit, because uh, now we've got you on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for taking the time. We're excited to have you, particularly because this feels like one of those stories where the privacy implications, they aren't these sort of opaque things that happen behind an ad regime. You know, it's not, it's not about real-time bidding. It's not about user profiles. It's like, hey, a photo ended up on a Facebook channel, and... That's really concrete. And so since we have so much to go through, let's just dig right in. And like I said, because most data collection and data sharing done by companies today happens behind the scenes, it can be really difficult for us to see the pathways that are taken that can result in something like this, that can result in a robot vacuums photo being shared on a private channel on Facebook. And so... I want to start with a basic but huge question here, which is, what happened and how did it happen? Yeah, I think those are all really great questions and points. And one of the key things that I found in my reporting and what this story is ultimately about is that conversations about privacy protection and what that actually means are so lopsided because we just don't know what it is that we're consenting to. And so these images, they really reveal this whole data supply chain or data life cycle and these new points where personal information can leak out that consumers aren't even aware of. You know, it's not just about, as you mentioned, ad bidding and selling your data for advertisements. It's that companies actually need a lot of personal, real-world data to create their products, including in this case, training the artificial intelligence of these robot vacuums that iRobot advertises can recognize dog waste so that they don't run it over and spread it over your home, or they can recognize the cords on the ground so they don't run those over, or they look at the kitchen cabinets and realize that they're in the kitchen, which means that they might need to operate a little bit differently than if they were in the living room with carpet. All of that is ultimately why these videos and, and photos were shared. And so to go into a little bit more detail into what that means, what we learned was that in this case, iRobot development devices took photos and videos from inside the homes of beta testers and employees, and they, they were doing it so that they could then share this data to be what's called labeled or annotated, which you described earlier really well as, as essentially adding a little bit of context to, to these photos so that robots and computer vision algorithms can recognize them. So the first step, they're collecting these photos and videos. They're then sharing those images with data annotation outsourcing companies like Scale AI. 
who manage the process of actually labeling the images. Now, Skill runs a gig working platform called Remote Tasks. And so on Remote Tasks, they essentially put up this project and and had their global workforce of gig workers sign up and apply and then ultimately work on them. But because these gig workers are not, you know, they're not in an office, they don't have controls over what they're doing on their laptops or anything like that. They can do whatever they want, essentially. They're working on their own time. And some of the gig workers, in this case in Venezuela, posted them onto private social media groups. On We, we got them from Facebook and Discord specifically. And I think it's interesting and important to note there that while sharing these images did violate the gig workers' non-disclosure agreements as part of their contracts, they weren't doing this nefariously, they were doing it because in some cases it was really unclear what it was that they were looking at. So in the images that we have, and I think we cut out a lot of these details in the published images, you know, it was a screenshot of the Facebook post itself. And I remember one where someone was saying, what is this object? And other people were commenting, that's a bed or no, that's not a bed because it looks more like a living room. So it's probably a couch. So, you know, it's, it's, the exact type of things that the robot vacuums, not that they're sentient or anything, of course, but their algorithms <laughs> are trying to figure this out as well. And it's, they're hard tasks. It's really unclear, especially when you are, you know, someone in Venezuela where furniture might look a certain way and you have to figure out what this is from a home in Japan or Germany or the United States. I had never considered the sort of like country to country, region to region context of a question like that. And I'm so interested in it just immediately because like homes are set up in different ways <laughs> in different countries. Exactly. We, we use we use spaces differently. We have access to spaces differently. We have access to the materials. And so to like make that like more plain, there's a lot of countries where like there isn't a difference in the floor between like a kitchen and a living room. They're both the same floor. And that isn't necessarily the same thing like in the United States. Like there'll be something that has tile and something that has carpet. And it's crazy that those context clues are removed or different. And then we have a group of, like you said, gig workers who are having to make those determinations. All of this is to say that like it actually sounds like a really difficult job in a way that I hadn't understood previously. Yeah, it, it kind of is. It's interesting because on the one hand, this kind of gig work, it's very repetitive you would think that it doesn't take that much skill, but there is a lot of context and, and nuance in, in all of this. And, and that's partly why the algorithms can't do it themselves. This kind of annotation. I think it's interesting also because I think when a lot of people hear the words artificial intelligence, uh, myself included, I kind of default to this idea that artificial intelligence is already making decisions on its own and then things rise up to the level of human intervention. And an example I have is like like a social media platform like Twitter, or Facebook, that is caught by an AI system for hate speech or for just like threats. That's all caught because of like a really basic language filter. And then if it can't be decided by the AI system, then a human comes in and says, actually, let's make the line call here. And sounds like this might actually be the inverse. And so what I'm trying to understand is like, is this normal? Like, is it normal for humans to be the front lines of training an AI system? 
That's a great question because I think that is how people generally think of AI, including, and, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but including some of the beta testers that were participating in this. They thought they understood what they were getting into because they thought that, you know, it's mostly AI. A human isn't going to be viewing all of this. But the thing is that to get to the point where humans are only looking at those edge cases and, and for the AI, the algorithms to be handling the rest, that actually is when the system is already working pretty well. You know, that's when the algorithms are already trained. And so we're essentially talking about the level or the, the step below that where you have to give the algorithm all of these inputs so that once it's trained and so once it goes out to customers, it, it sees that shape that looks like, I don't know, let's just say 500 couches that we've already seen before. It's basing that on something. And so we're basically talking about that baseline. These data labelers are helping to create the baseline that then allows the algorithms to recognize the patterns. I'm also curious, do we have any information about like how much data was actually moving? And, and you mentioned, uh, you know, that company Scale AI. And just as a brief aside, you know, it, it's crazy to hear how like mundane things are like in the setup, like they have their own gig economy platform, like, oh, it's the same thing. Like, it's like, okay, we're just recreating the models that we have everywhere. That's all right. That's cool to know. Um, but <laughs> yeah, more, actually, yeah. Um, just speaking of gig workers and, and like the gig platforms, I, I think that's actually a really interesting point because crowdsourcing comes in in two places in in how iRobot works. And that was a choice that iRobot made. And, and so what I'm talking about there is with the data annotation, you know, a lot of companies do this work in-house, either engineers on, I mean, it's it's rarely engineers anymore because engineers are very expensive, but when you're when you're first writing, you know, the algorithm, it it could be the engineers that are doing it. Or a lot of companies might have like an outsourced contract workforce that's on a different building on site or something like that. And then they can outsource it to kind of third party business like outsourcing companies, right? Like, so think like call centers in India or, or something like that. There's a similar model, but you can have those workers work in a secure facility. And Scale AI actually offers that option. And I don't know why, probably just because of price, iRobot chose, they had to have chosen to go with this other model. So that's the first place that they made the choice to use a crowdsourcing platform. The second one is they recruited the beta testers on Betabound, which is a very popular crowdsourcing platform as well that essentially matches up people that might want to try out early products and maybe get them for free or get gift cards or whatever with companies that need to get feedback. And, and usually it is feedback on products, not data collection in this way. I'm so glad you pointed that out, like that the there were conscious decisions to use crowdsourcing and particularly that you also said that scale AI has an option that isn't crowdsourced, you know, like that it's there. It's not like, it's not like it wasn't available. It's just to kind of hammer home that like, this was a choice. This was a, this was a thing. Uh, something that you were talking about, you know, it, often it's, it's feedback. It's not data collection. Uh, back on that point, do we have any idea, any information on the scale of data sharing? You know, is there any understanding of, for instance, like how many contractors have seen these photos or how many contractors were utilized, you know, by scale AI for iRobot's projects, just trying to get 
numbers on this if we have them? That's a great question. And that's a question that I asked both of the companies as well as just computer vision engineers about, you know, how many images do you need to train an algorithm? And there's really no clear answers that I was given. iRobot was interviewed in a profile on Scale AI uh, by the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago. And that's the closest that we can get to numbers. They said that Scale AI had helped them label 2 million images up until that point. And, and that included the period where these images were collected. So, yeah, so back in like 2019, 2020, I believe. But iRobot has also said that Scale isn't the only data annotation company that it uses. It has not told us how many it uses. And Scale AI has not told us how many gig workers, you know, were working on this project or more broadly. But I think what we do know is that the data annotation industry is, it's a young industry and it is growing a lot. So this is certainly not limited to iRobot. Other robot vacuum companies are also doing similar things. But also any other company that uses AI needs, especially computer vision and audio, understanding audio is a big one. The, you mentioned content moderation earlier. All of these industries are using data annotation at some level. It's a little disheartening to learn that like AI, and maybe other people know this, so apologies to everyone who knows this. I'm just coming to terms with it on the podcast, but it's just disheartening to know that AI is us, you know, mm. like at a, at a massive scale. Yeah. Um, it's just like, okay, like that's why it does what it does because like we do those things. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I wanted to go back to your reporting because uh, in all of it, iRobot has been adamant in saying that no customer data was included in, in what you found and that instead everything was data from, quote, paid data collectors and employees, uh, end quote. What does that mean? It's my perception that iRobot really wants to reassure people that might be looking at buying the Roomba that Roombas are not taking and saving images and videos from inside homes. So when it says that it's, you know, only collecting this data from, quote, paid data collectors and employees, that's the main point that it's making. And so the company did tell us that they only use these special development devices, which have extra capabilities that the average device does not have. And it's those extra capabilities that allow it to record, to save, and then share video and other data. And they also said that they had done all of this data collection with full consent and signed consent agreements. It was really interesting when we reached out to them for comment. At one point, we did share with them all of the images that we had. And, and at that point, I didn't know that it was iRobot. I suspected that it was, but we weren't sure until they confirmed it for us. But what was really interesting is that when they confirmed it, they sent us a spreadsheet that had every single image and the date and location and time that it was collected. And this point, there was a column that there was a signed consent agreement that was affiliated with that. But they wouldn't share the consent agreements with us. And to us and to the privacy experts and lawyers and the former FTC official that we spoke to, it was really the details of what was in that agreement that would tell us how bad was what iRobot had done, actually. I'm going to get to that, but I wanted to just understand first, so this like reporting thing happening, you had the images first and you didn't know 
who was the manufacturer behind the products taking those photos? Is that? Yeah. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to, so to go back a little bit. So, um, yeah. you know, earlier this year, a concerned individual that would like to remain anonymous reached out to us with these images and actually had, there were 16 images and the other one, it turned out was something else as, as we learned, but all of them came from this kind of strange upward 45 degrees angle. And so we knew that they were from scale AI because the data labelers were talking about that. Um, and I, I could see some of the conversations. We suspected that they were robot vacuums. The data labelers suspected that it was robot vacuums as well, just by that angle. Like, what else takes images from those positions, right? But the gig workers are not typically told who they're working for or what client they're working on. And so we also didn't know. So this was a quite a challenge to report out for a number of reasons, yeah. including that I didn't know what company it was. So one of the first things that I did was build myself a database of all of the robot vacuum companies that I could, you know, find information on and then kind of narrow it down. So we know that, you know, it has a front facing camera. We know that it's using object recognition. So which are the robot vacuum devices that have that? And we just kept whittling, whittling it down. And there's one image that it's of a kitchen. There's a woman standing at the kitchen. There's a black Labrador that's staring at the oven. And in the oven, you can just kind of make out a light that's reflected back. And that appears to be coming from the robot vacuum. And it was that that gave us the clue of, okay, how many robot vacuums actually have visible light cameras in the front? And the only one that we could find that actually advertised this was iRobot. So that and some other context clues, you know, helped us, you know, at, at one point in my database also, we, we have uh, images from all of the other robot vacuums with cameras that we could find. So we were trying to compare those. So we didn't know that it was iRobot until like very, very late in our reporting. <laughs> I love this story. I love this like reporting story. I love this moment where like there's this light that you see reflected in one of the photos and you look to see like who is at least, you know, advertising this capability and you find it. And there's just this sort of like, we got them, you know, like <laughs> we have a better idea than we did before. And just this kind of light bulb moment, this lightning strike. And, and it was them. You reached out to them and they confirmed with, they had their own spreadsheet. It seems they that did. was quite thorough. And as you were saying before, the one thing that really was necessary to, to understand whether or not sort of data privacy rights were violated or whether or not the consent agreement itself was violated was getting your hands on the consent agreement. And so the next follow-up question here is this, this vital piece of information. Did you end up getting consent agreements? We did. We did get a number of consent agreements. We have published the kind of umbrella agreement that it appears like everyone signs. But it's, that's also quite interesting because there were so many agreements that beta testers were asked to sign. You know, there was the what's called the Global Test Agreement for Development Robots, which had how they handle privacy, intellectual property, um, how their research will be conducted. You know, if 
the the special considerations if you're not in the U.S., different things like that. But there was also for one of the projects an actual consent agreement that was titled consent agreement, and that would allow iRobot, I guess, to use the feedback that had been provided publicly. So I think that was for you know a specific test. There was what appeared to be like a general beta bound agreement. There was a couple of others that you know had like a variety of different names. But so all of that is to say is that. Privacy policies are really, really long, and most people don't read them, and companies know that most people don't read them. So to say, oh, you know, we have a consent agreement and everyone signed this, and so therefore we can we can do this and it's totally okay, it's just really not that good of an argument as iRobot seems to think it is. And, and then when you actually look at the agreements, they're a lot less clear than iRobot is making it sound. And, and that's also... For me, like there, there's so many layers to this story. And, and in our follow-up where we were talking to beta testers, there is the wrong against the beta testers specifically that they feel quite strongly about. But there's also what this says about the really, in my mind, after all of this reporting, broken consent framework that affects everyone that uses these products. I love hearing those words, because we will get to them. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> we, we 100% will get to them. But as you mentioned, some of the beta testers who reached out to you and who spoke with you, they are still upset. And uh, something I was particularly struck by is that like, you had examples of beta testers who read through the agreements, not a simple task to read through several pages, probably through multiple agreements and, and try to understand what is going to, like what they're entering into. And even then, these people were still upset. And so I wanted to ask from all of them, from the group of people who read it and understood it and those who didn't read it or those who read it and didn't understand it, just why were the beta testers upset? Yeah. So there's kind of two camps. There's some people that maybe didn't fully read the agreement or skimmed through it. And so I, I had a number of people tell me that they weren't aware that the video recording was actually going to be happening or they didn't really understand that it would be recording all the time. It is worth noting that iRobot did place a green sticker that's pretty bright on, on top of the devices themselves that said video recording in progress. But again, do you know that you know, it means it's going to be recording all the time or it's sometimes recording, like that's not clear. But so on the one hand, there were people that were just unclear that the video recording would be happening all the time. And then on the other hand, there are people that point out that they read the agreements, but they don't understand what that fully means. And then, you know, we can break it down further from there. And I, I'll, I'll do that in a second. But to the question that you brought up earlier about your understanding of, of AI, some of the beta testers that I spoke to shared that understanding, which is that they understood that, okay, this device is going to be recording video, but they didn't expect that a human was actually going to be looking at everything, you know, because they thought that that's not required of AI anymore. Some of them didn't realize that that a human would be looking at all. And that was one of the questions that we had posed to iRobot early on. And they, they gave me a very, you know, typical like PRE answer of just the consent agreement did make it clear that third party service providers would have access to this data. But what does that actually mean? You know, if you're if you're not working in this field. And then finally, there were people that, as you mentioned, did read the agreements, they knew that the device was recording, and they were fine with that, but they weren't fine. And they didn't know how the data would be handled and processed after it was collected. 
there was really no explanation of that. So we've kind of talked about this already, but they that means that there was no explanation that this would be sent outside of the U.S., that it would be sent to gig workers, not even in-house, that the data annotation would be outsourced, that you know the data protection system that was in place would allow someone to be able to just screenshot and upload to Facebook. All of those things were really unclear. And again, for me, that just points out this broader issue for privacy policies that, again, these documents that we don't read, that companies know we don't read, they're also essentially forcing consumers to trust not just that company that we bought the product from and I guess must have some level of trust in, but also everyone else that they do business with. Oh, and by the way, they're not going to tell us who those people are. You know, so this whole system is just stacked against us, the user, the whether that is a beta tester in this case, or the consumer that buys the product. I could honestly go on about this um, for quite a bit. But but I, I just I do want to point out one other piece of this that came out both in the agreements themselves and, and was also something that iRobot, you know, repeated in their statements to us. There's another line in in the agreement that does ask individuals to remove any data that they consider sensitive and don't want to be um, photographed or, or have video taken of, including children. And, and iRobot, again, you know, said this in their statements to us. And it's just such an absurd statement, you know, for, for several reasons. Like, you're running this device in your home. Um, some, of, some of the testers had these for six weeks, ran it, you know, three times a, a week or sometimes multiple times a day. It depended. But you're going to remove your child from your home yeah. when this is happening, you know, or like, um, or or like, th- this is something that didn't make it into the story just because of time. But um, Ben Winters, a privacy lawyer at Epic, was telling us, you know, that one of his takes was like, what if someone has a bong in their house, you know, and that's against uh, that's against the law in whatever jurisdiction they're in? Like, what happens there? Is it their fault that they didn't notice that there was a bong in the background and, and they didn't remove it and that image gets to gets them in trouble? Like, where's the legal liability? Who's who has it? What what happens here? Right. But there's another issue around around the uh, removing children or, or whatever is there's only one person that's signing this agreement, and that is the beta tester that has signed up. And can they really consent for everyone that is in that household? And maybe the answer is like legally, yes, but ethically, can they do that? that that's another question. And, and I think that's, a, that's also an important question in all of this, that iRobot may have broken zero laws. Uh, and that is likely the case because they have, you know, an, an excellent legal team. But what is legally correct and what is ethically correct and what is going to gain or maintain the trust of your users, those are all very different things. How has the company responded to all of your reporting thus far? Are, are they still like making announcements or was it kind of like a one and done, hey, here's our response, bye? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I think I was actually surprised that they did give us so much information, including confirming the images. Um, I think that was ultimately the smart thing for them to do. But also, we were prepared to publish the story without 
the knowledge of, of which company it was, because we do think it yeah. is a broader issue that, again, we just don't understand how much data is actually being collected and used to, to train AI. And and again, to reframe maybe the conversation around, around privacy, to move beyond just selling data to it's also dangerous potentially when data is being shared. And that happens a lot more than we understand. That's an aside, but to, to get back to your question. So they told us that they did notify the people whose homes were captured in the 15 images. They launched an investigation into how these images were leaked. I, I don't know what happened to that. Part of that was both they and Scale really wanted me to reveal my sources to them, tell them what Facebook and Discord groups I got the images from, which is wow. kind of funny. A journalist would never reveal our sources. People <laughs> yeah. have gone to jail yeah. to avoid doing that. They did terminate their contract with Scale AI and said that they're going to improve their data protection processes in, in some way to prevent this from happening in the future. And then uh, Colin Angle, the CEO, published this LinkedIn blog post to respond to our story. He, again, really wanted to highlight that this was not customer data, which, as far as we know, is true. They also expressed regret in that LinkedIn blog post that we published the images with people's faces in them. Uh, we covered the faces, which they did not do. Um, uh. Side note, but it was the only point where they expressed regret for anything that, that happened in all of this. <laughs> what they haven't done, though, is notify the broader testing community. And testers are also really upset about that. One of our sources, Greg, who felt really strongly about how poorly iRobot was treating him and other testers, in part because he works in a software company, so has a better understanding than most of how AI works, how data protection should look when it's done well, you know, all of these things. He said that he felt really betrayed that iRobot hadn't released some kind of statement. And he had this really great analogy of, let's say a retailer like Target has a credit card breach. They don't just inform the five or 10 or 100 people that actually had their credit card numbers stolen. They inform the entire community so the community can decide how they want to act as a result of that information. And so for Greg and for the other testers that, that spoke about this issue, it's just this really deep sense of betrayal. They feel like they're a part of this community. They feel like they've played a part in helping iRobot create better products. And a lot of them really believe in beta testing and didn't want their full names to be used because they want to continue beta testing. And in some cases, including for iRobot. So this lack of respect is just really sad for them. I can't believe, like you said, that like there's still the desire to product test for iRobot. You know, like they're coming at it from an angle of like, I'm still want to be helpful, but you know, the person they're trying to help or the company or the organization is making that very difficult. And I can understand why they feel a sense of betrayal. Something that we've touched on multiple times and now we get to get into the meat, you know, like 30 minutes into the podcast <laughs> is this story shines a lot of light on the current system we have where we have to consent to things that maybe we don't actually understand or maybe that we 
can't predict because of the way things are written. It sounded like you had a lot of thoughts about what was going on there. And so I just wanted to make that like a really open question to you. What has this taught you or, or reinforced that you already knew about our data privacy? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that our data privacy is really at risk in ways that we don't yet understand. And it's a lot worse in the US than it is certainly in Europe. And it, again, it goes beyond robot vacuums. One of the first things that I did, as I mentioned, was I built this database of robot vacuum companies to try and understand who was behind these images. But as part of that, I also went through and read all of their privacy policies, and that's also in the database. And, and there's differences between the companies, both in how transparent they are about what they're collecting, but also in what they collect. But there's also commonalities. And, and one of the main commonalities is that every product has a line that is about, we are allowed to use your data to improve products and services. And that improve products and services, it might be worded slightly differently, but it is there in everything. And we asked all of the robot vacuum companies that we reached out to a ton of questions. You know, We sent them all these images and asked them to comment. We asked them about this line, improving products and services, and whether or not that includes machine learning and object recognition. And most companies didn't respond to us, but a number did, and the ones that did said yes, that that is one of the ways that they'll that they'll use this data. So it's just really concerning, honestly. It's um it feels both from reporting this story, I think this story has has emphasized this point to me more than anything else I've ever reported, but also from previous reporting, it just feels like it's a matter of time. With all of these companies, you know, everyone says that they protect privacy, they take privacy very seriously, but it's a matter of time before a reporter or, you know, a security researcher finds how they're not living up to that. That's a big point. I think another thing that really came up for me as I was reading through these privacy policies and just reading through all the PR that these companies put out about their products is that there's a conflation between security and privacy, which is really convenient to the companies because, and to their credit, security is getting better because security is, it's an engineering problem. But privacy, which is, among other things, just how much data they're collecting, it's, you know, how long they're retaining that data, it's what they're doing with that data, that's getting a lot worse over time. Um, and part of that is just because these companies are collecting a lot more data now than they they had in the past or maybe even had the capability to collect in the past. And it's kind of an easy sleight of hand that for most consumers is not very clear. Something that I thought became really clear in talking to you right now is there are like two aspects of what happened in this story that make me feel like most of the terms and conditions and most of the like contracts we sign, most of the privacy policies that we agree to, that they are like invalid. <laughs> and I know like that's a big <laughs> thing. But when I look at two specific things that you mentioned on today's episode, one of them being 
who is signing the agreement and who does that agreement impact? So, right, like, okay, one person can sign it, but it's capturing the photos of other family members. It's capturing the photos of kids who, if they're under 18, cannot consent to something like this. And so it's like one, like, you know, our privacy decisions are not our own. They kind of branch out and they impact on their other people. And number two was you don't have enough information to know whether or not what you're agreeing to makes any sense because a company has a bunch of different partners that they work with and they have a bunch of different contractors that they send things out to. And we are not given in a privacy policy a sort of, I guess what's called like a bill of materials Mm. or like a supply chain, right? Like we're not told this is going to go to this company and this company is going to send it to these people. And these people, by the way, have a private Facebook channel and they are not going to use it maliciously but they are still going to send photos to one another. And like the solution isn't necessarily let's all get those things because then that just makes the privacy policy like larger, like infinitely larger. But those two things to me feel like the policies we agree to are sort of just invalid because one, they impact more than us. And two, we don't have all the information to fully grasp them. And that feels terrible (laughs) like there's no other way to put it like it just feels like oh we're just doing this thing and we're just going to keep on doing it because we haven't really found an alternative and that is my big kind of final question to you and no problem if you personally haven't solved the hardest problem (laughs) that there is today in data privacy but I still like throwing it out to everyone I have on the show who talks about this stuff which is how do we, how can we fix this? And not just for the people affected directly, but kind of more broadly, is there a way to fix like the data collection regime that has led to these problems? Yeah, that is such a big question. Um, (laughs) Before I even try to like tackle maybe a tiny bit of that, I think the two takeaways of how these agreements are not valid are, I mean, yeah, that's that's exactly right. But I, I, I think the first part, honestly, is is for us to recognize that and include that in the broader conversation about privacy, because right now it still kind of is, it's a big deal that we are getting more information, you know, because of new regulations like the California Consumer Protection Act, you know, there's, there's a lot more information that is available now about how data is being shared, what it's being used for, all of that, that didn't exist before. And I I think that's important. And I think we do need more transparency. But that also is kind of based on the supposition that these privacy policies are the good solution. And I don't think they are. I think there may be part of the solution, but it needs to be, it needs to move beyond that. Something that several data governance experts spoke to me about is that there are models for better protection of data in other industries. Like if you look at financial services, if you look at oil and gas, if you look at defense, there are really, really stringent data governance regulations and and norms and standards. And those don't exist when it comes to consumer protection. There's not the same kind of penalties, financially in particular, for companies when there are these breaches. And so I think that part of the solution is better and stronger regulation. And also that is kind of wild to me that, you know, 
the protection of information about people is is so much less valued than the protection of financial information, for example, or oil and gas information, or or all of this other stuff. So I I, I think it's it's this complete mind shift that needs to happen about both privacy policies in particular and how we as a society value consumer data. Yeah. That last part you said, the mind shift, right? Of how we value consumer data. I think it's so smart. I think that's such a smart thing. And I wish it was easy to do that. I wish it was easy to convince (laughs) an entire populace, you know? Um, Yeah. But we kind of get to the things we already did that a lot of this is invisible, you know, for a lot of yes. folks, it, it takes something like this to understand, oh, this is what happens, you know, this system allows this. And we have a country where we don't really like do a lot of things until something bad happens. And it's unfortunate. Right. That's all. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, um, just thinking about what I said there, it's not just consumer protection, right, which is how the US thinks about it. But in Europe, it's it's about just people, not consumers, but citizens. And so that widens how data is protected uh, in, in a way that in the U.S. It's, it's not yet. I didn't even put that together. You know, like that was a blind spot for me because in our country, like it's like, sh- surely you have to participate in the transaction of capitalism to get data rights right (laughs) right it's just like oh no 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 there's different ways to do it eileen i wanted to thank you again so much for coming on today's show thank you so much for having me to our listeners we'll talk to you again in two weeks until then stay tuned and stay safe and remember you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on malwarebytes labs at malwarebytes.com slash blog and please If you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Uh, Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. Thank you, folks.